0: Surgeons today are beginning to reconstruct amputated limbs by implanting prosthetics directly into the skeletons of patients. In this conversation, I spoke to world-leading osteointegration surgeon Munjid Almaderis, about the new technology that's replacing external prosthetics and allowing amputees to move and feel again. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. These conversations are supported by the Andrew von Braun Foundation. If you enjoy what I'm doing and want to support me, you can do so by subscribing, liking, and sharing this content. And now, here's Munjid Amadeiris. I hope you enjoy.
1: Escaped SAPIENS
0: So l- let's jump into what you actually do as a doctor. So let's get to the real sort of meat of the conversation. What is into osseointegration? And what does it do better than traditional prosthetics?
1: Well. Osea integration is an innovative technology. It is osseointegration application on for amputees is a newer technology. The word osseointegration meaning the bond of metal and bone, and this started in the sixties um, where with dental implants, and it became very popular around the world um, nowadays where there are millions and millions of dental implants inserted in teeth, very successfully. Mind you, the tooth and the and the mouth is the dirtiest part of our body, okay? And has the worst bacteria that you can think of. So it does work. The application of OC integration on limbs and amputees started in the early 90s. The first patient was done was in 1990, where the son of the inventor of the dental implant um, is an orthopedic surgeon, and he magnified a dental implant, make it a mega dental implant, and inserted it into the femur of a bilateral amputee. And that worked. The lady walked with an osseointegration integration device for 24 years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I was fascinated about the idea of giving amputees some sort of normality restoring their mobility back and giving them hope and making them functional in the society again. Especially that the technology that they use, that I've seen since I was growing in Iraq, is a socket-mounted prosthesis, which is a technology that involve encasing a socket, a hard socket, used to be made of wood, in the last 40 years started becoming of fiberglass, and carbon fiber um but it encased the whole residual limb and suspend an artificial limb an artificial leg from there or an artificial hand this technology has not changed over the last 600 years in in 1529 per ingiver br- um um sorry uh not uh, um 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 Umbrace pa- Umbrace Paré, if i i do apologize to him if, um, if, you if pronounce I mis- his pronounce wrong. his name wrong, uh, I think his name is Amboise uh, Paré. He was a French naval officer, invented the socket mounted prosthesis in, ni- in 1529. And since then, we've been using the same technology to this date. There must be something new. There must be something revolutionizing this idea because obviously it's been going on for that long, but, Hasn't shown any significant changes. The prosthesis have changed. Um, you know, in in the past they used to be just a stick, and then it become an, uh, a mechanical limb, and now it's my electric limb that has sensors and has even motorized limb. But the interface that hook up the prosthetic limb with the body has not changed. So I was fascinated about finding a solution. So. What I did in 2010, in 2008, I went and studied the technology in, in Germany. And, and the Germans have a different theory about osseointegration, where it's a press fit, but they used where it's similar to a hip or a knee replacement. Um, where instead of a screw fixation device, like a dental implant, the dental implant is screwed in. Mm-hmm. While the Germans believed in hammering in something that shoved in inside the, the bone, and sticks and then the bone grow on it that made more sense to me because that's what i do as an orthopedic surgeon in my training we put hips and knees and that's how it works you jam it in and the bone grow on it so the germans were doing that but they were using a different material which is chrome cobalt not titanium so it's not biocompatible as much so i came up with an idea using a titanium material using a press fit technology merging the two and historically the germans and the swedes were competing about osseointegration okay and they were doing niche kind of five cases a, a year because mm-hmm. it's very limited number for many reasons one of the reasons is that it's two state surgery mm-hmm. 18 months rehabilitation period and people have to go through multiple um, very slow process of weight bearing so a lot of patients don't have time for that so I came up with the thought that what if we make it like a hip replacement? So I merged this technology, modified the technique, modified the implant design and came up with a design that is similar to a hip replacement that provide very rough surface, can be inserted easily okay, by um, a trained orthopedic surgeon in a short period of time and make it one operation that the patient get the implant and then start walking. Okay. And that was the creation of my approach to osseointegration integration in 2010. Mm-hmm. So j-
0: just, just so people understand what's going on. So let's say, for example, I came with a, an above the knee amputation. What would the procedure look like? So you would insert a titanium rod into uh, the larger bone there in my upper leg. And then how long would it
1: take before I could walk on that? Yeah. So the process that I developed will involve opening the... For example, you have an above-knee amputee, um, you open the stump, Mm -hmm. refashion the soft tissue, the muscles, the subcutaneous tissue, the fat, open it all up until you get to the bone. You get to the bone, you open the canal in the bone, you size, ream it inside, bore it to fit the optimum size for the implant and then you insert the implant and there and then you reorganize the muscles and the soft tissue around that implant and then you organize the nerves sometimes with what's called targeted muscle reinnervation where you reinnovate these m- muscles to for two purposes one to pain manage and two uh, to uh, use utilize these as an amplifier to create some sort of functionality for the myoprosthetic limb in the future. And then you connect that implant through a small opening in the skin mm-hmm. to a prosthetic limb.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's an actual open, it's, it's not closed off, you, you yeah. directly connect.
1: So you will have the implant in the bone inserted, sealed, and then you have muscles around it, organized to f- operate it, and then you have a connector that percutaneously that perforate the skin and connect into a prosthetic limb and that will operate a prosthetic limb myelectric limb this technology um, with the patient like a piece of metal sticking out of the leg okay and the patient start standing up the day after the surgery and they increase the loading depend on the loading protocol uh, but they get fitted with uh, with a prosthetic limb um as early as two weeks after the surgery and um and um and then um, they walk with two crutches for six weeks to one crutch with six weeks and then uh, unaided after so that i compacted the rehabilitation protocol number one i made it instead of two or more surgeries to one surgery and number two the rehabilitation protocol went from 18 months to literally two weeks mm-hmm. okay not dissimilar to a hip replacement. Six weeks in in the vast majority of cases, not dissimilar to a hip replacement. And the patient will gain their independence. Just to be clear, this is not an operation to relieve pain. This is an operation to give people mobility back. This is an operation that will allow the patient to have higher level of mobility, more confidence, it will eliminate the socket-mounted prosthesis problems by less interference with the skin because people with the socket, they get silicon allergy, they get irritation, they get chafing, they get blisters, they get um, friction, they get excoriation, um, and they get sweating, they get smell. All of that happened with the socket-mounted prosthesis. Um, And this is one aspect from the contact. The other aspect is that human beings, especially females, they have di- diurnal changes. In the morning, the size of the leg is much smaller than mm-hmm. and the end of the day. It swells up. So in the morning, the leg is roomy inside the, the, the socket because the socket is hard fixed, made out of not flexible material. And then by the end of the day, you can't put it on because it's, your leg is too swollen that doesn't mm-hmm. fit in the, in the socket. So that will be eliminated. And the third thing, which is very important, that we didn't know about, um, these people get some sort of feedback. They could feel carpet. They could feel um, tiles. This they is people could feel with the employer. with the Aussie integration, because people with O C integration is directly attached to the skeleton, mm-hmm. and the nerves. When we reorganize them, and they start recognizing the sense, so you tap on the leg, and they tell you where they where you tapped. When As they in walk, along,
0: along the limb, they can actually yes, distinguish.
1: they can distinguish and they can identify the, the ground. So this is very important for people who are going back to work mm-hmm. because an amputee with a socket cannot walk into a dark room
2: mm-hmm.
1: because they have to look at the ground when they walk because they can't feel the ground. It's like you are on a hover mat. Mm-hmm. Okay. While with osseointegration, integration, you feel the ground. You feel the vibration. You feel the feedback from the ground. So they can walk with their eyes closed, and we've done tests on that, they can walk into a dark room and they don't need to look at the ground. So that allow patients to regain some sort of occupation that they were prohibited from doing as a socket user amputees. So these are the three main things, is eliminating the socket mounted process problems, controlling their mobility and fit better, and giving the patient an osteoporception or the proprioception back, which is the sense of the ground. That's the advantage of osseointegration over the traditional socket mount processes. Now, would I say that osseointegration is better or superior technology? Definitely not, because that comes with risks. The surgery, you need to have surgery to have this uh, procedure. There is a risk of infection.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There is a risk of infection with a socket from the skin friction, but there is a risk of infection where you have a piece of metal sticking out of the leg. Mm-hmm. That risk of infection varies depending on the individuals, depending on how heavy they are. If they are smokers, if they are diabetic, if they have vascular disorder, uh, depend on their hygiene. There is a risk of granulation tissue. There is a risk what, of- What's the granulation? Which is overgrowth of tissue mm-hmm. around, and that can be irritating. There is a risk of bleeding, gushing. If you are in blood thinners, you gush blood from it every now and then with activity. Um, but these are all these risks are reasonable. And when you weigh the benefits versus the risk, that's why when you seek OSE integration or when you seek any medical advice, you don't go to a computer and tick boxes and then you get your operation. That's why you have to sit in front of a clinician Or in my case, you sit in front of a panel of clinicians with multidisciplinary approach, you'll see myself, you see a group of surgeons, you'll see a pain specialist, you'll see a psychologist, you'll see a prosthetist, you'll see a a physician, you'll see a a physiotherapist, you'll see a nurse specialist. All these people have a say on whether you're a yay or a nay. Okay. So,
0: so who is a candidate then? Who who is the um, if you could paint a picture of the ideal candidate for this sort of a.
1: So, I can give you two scenarios, mm-hmm. okay, and and to the inexperienced eyes, okay, one will be the best candidate, and the other will be the worst candidate, mm-hmm. okay. So the first scenario is a young Paralympian above knee amputee a male with a very good residuum very healthy no medical condition Mm -hmm. okay won seven gold medals in the paralympics okay and one to participate in the next paralympics that's one candidate okay the second one is a diabetic ex-smoker a person who's in a wheelchair that cannot get to the to the kitchen and um, to the fridge, and all they want is to have some dignity, in order to walk um, uh, uh, with um, uh, with their dog or walk around the house and get to um, uh, and get rid of the carers that they have. They have to have and ha- gain some independence. Which one would you choose as a candidate?
0: From a risks perspective, uh, I would say I would choose the Olympian. From a regaining life perspective, I would choose the one who just wants to walk and just walk their dog.
1: That's very good. Having said that, from a risk perspective, I would choose the wheelchair band. Why why is that? Because the Paralympian has unexpected expectations.
0: They have very high expectations
1: of what they have. They have very high expectations, okay? Mm -hmm. They will never get their leg back, Mm -hmm. okay? They will always be above-knee amputee, mm-hmm. okay? This will not give them their leg back. And what they're doing now is too good.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So giving them their OSE integration will expose them to unnecessary risk. hmm hmm okay? I see. So that's why for so the, the risk tra- perspective- the trade-off isn't worth it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so weighing the benefits versus the, the risks, the risks outso- outweighs the benefits by miles. Mm-hmm. okay, and that's why I said from a risk perspective, the paralympian is much riskier I see. okay because I will add little possibly to them, but I would give them a chance of having a lot of problems uh, for example uh, if it doesn't work, if they get infection, if they um uh, have an infection that requires them to lose the rest of their leg, touch with nothing that mm-hmm. that doesn't happen often and hasn't happened to us okay um um but this um, is a very minor risk, but does exist, okay? So, so
0: can, can patients load the, like, can they run, for instance? Is
1: it strong enough? So I used to say no running before, mm. okay? But now I ask them not to run for the first year. And because we have a lot of people that are Paralympians and they, were, uh, they became Paralympians after we operate on them. So I have several patients like Mikul, like people that um, um, uh, um, uh, David Watson. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 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 this is public knowledge, and um, they, 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 they Can they, I ask There you? is no breach of patient confidentiality here because they uh, they won Paralympic medals and uh, they won Invictus Games medals, and they were, they went public about their and there are stories written about them.
0: So, yes. so when you're sitting there and you're watching the TV and you see them cross the finish line, like what does that feel? <laughs> you, you've constructed look, that mean, leg.
1: I mean, look, it's, it's, it's a good feeling of satisfaction. But what, 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 I, what I'm more interested in is looking at the satisfaction that their family have. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because um, when, when a child look at their dad for the first time walking after they've been wheelchair-bound, mind you, a lot of these Paralympians, a lot of these Invicta Games winners were wheelchair bands. When they came to see me, so by being part of their journey to walk again and hold their hands with their children, that is the biggest achievement. Okay, that's what I, uh, that's what satisfies me the most. Okay, Um, so back to the story about the risk. Yeah. Okay, so if you can manage to get a patient out of a wheelchair cure their diabetes, if they are type two, type two diabetes, diabetics, allowing them to lose weight and being engaged in the society, then that is a much lower risk. Despite that, the ill-experienced eyes, and even some clinicians criticized that heavily, okay? I, have, I can openly speak to you about a patient that I treated where the clinicians thought, that this patient should be doomed, wheelchair-bound, and let let that patient go, and um, despite that this patient um, was in her 30s, but she had medical problems, Mm -hmm. okay? And she was a very high-risk patient, but she was wheelchair-bound, okay? She was properly assessed by the panel, by the team, multidisciplinary, and was found that we can give her Another lease on life with not much uh, you know um, risk taking because we could optimize a lot of things that were overlooked
2: mm-hmm.
1: by by other people and as a result of that, this patient regained mobility, returned back to high impact um, high high functionality not high impact, high functionality and very um, um, and and, and and become very happy with her life, okay? Mm. And that was a risk despite that uh, we faced extreme criticism about taking on this patient.
2: Mm.
1: But because we measured the risk, we had a multidisciplinary approach, we had a very calculated approach toward the risk, the patient had full understanding and, and had full psychological assessment done ticked all the boxes that we could tick, okay? And look at look at that patient with a different angle and, and believe that we can give this patient some sort of functionality and not give up on this patient, mm. okay, and just deem that patient, become the judge, the jury, and the execu- uh, executioner uh, for this patient. Every person deserve another chance, okay? and i'm not a person that would call myself uh, you know uh, like uh, i would make miracles i'm, I'm just a clinician that utilize my knowledge my expertise and my team uh, expertise to the best interest of the patient we're not trying to give patients false hope we're just trying to maximize the benefits of the doubt and maximize what the medical fraternity can provide for these patients without causing them harm or minimizing the risk.
0: Mm. One of the things I find amazing about what you said just then is that, okay, you're able to move this uh, surgery into one operation. And from the perspective of scaling and and getting these sort of procedures to a large number of people, that's obviously an amazing thing. But Mm. what, what I'm curious about is, you know, I know that for tooth implants, often, if, if the the patient has not had a tooth there for some time, the bone will deteriorate because it hasn't had pressure on it. Do you have to ever do bone implants prior to doing the surgery or do you need to strengthen with bone implants? Uh, h- how do you manage that? So this is
1: very, very, very important question. Very good question. And that's why when I answered the first question, it depends on the protocol and depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. So if you have a healthy young individual who lost their limb two years ago, okay, mm-hmm. and they walking walking, um, Um, uh, with a socket, but they have problems with the socket, we would offer them the surgery and they will be on the FAST protocol, okay? Okay. Because their bone, we assess the bone quality, we do DEXA scan on every patient, we do CT scan on every patient, we we do X-rays on every patient, and we assess their um, mobility, we assess their functionality, and we assess their bone density. All of these measures are taken into place. And then based on that, we decide the protocol. So if a patient hasn't deteriorated with their bone, we load them quickly. Mm-hmm. If the patient is osteoporotic, uh, elderly person that has not walked for 20 years and they wanna uh, have a chance of walking, they will go through, they still single surgery, but they will go through a very slow loading uh, protocol until they build their bone, okay? Yeah. Because they are higher risk of, uh, of fracture. We don't implant bone well, uh, on routine basis, we have done that. Um, on special occasions, but there, it's not one suit fit everybody. I see. Again, it's not a vending machine where you click, tick mm-hmm. on, the bo- mm-hmm. uh, on the numbers and an operation comes out. That's why we are a team of multidisciplinary um, uh, members where we approach every patient individually, case by case, assessed, and then value, uh, evaluate what is best for that particular patient.
0: I see, so rather than having to do everything in the surgery through rehabilitation after the fact, you can actually get,
1: okay, that makes a lot of sense. So the rehabilitation represents significant portion of the uh, process, Mm -hmm. and um, definitely it's it's a a very important part of the process. Um, If you don't have a rehabilitation, you don't have a process at all. Psychology, management of pain, all these are essential parts so the elements, so you have the the surgeon is just a single, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, link link in <laughs> the chain. Mm. But you don't have a chain unless you have all the links working together and acting together. Mm. And um, um, everybody is equally important mm-hmm. in the preoperative assessment, in the interoperative care, and the postoperative care. Mm-hmm and the continuation of care afterward, on um, long-term. So it is a process. <laughs> um, it is very rewarding. Does it work all the time? Definitely not. But I can speak with confidence that mobility-wise, we have managed to help the vast, vast majority of patients. Pain is a different story. Okay. Patients who lose a limb, They amputate bone, they amputate muscle, they amputate tendons, soft tissue, including nerves. When nerves are amputated, they go haywire. They develop neuromas, they develop phantom limb pain, they develop phantom limb sensation. That happens as a result of the amputation. That does not happen as a result of the surgery. That happens from the moment the nerve gets injured, in the first insult, the nerve start acting funny to manage that science has not got to a definitive answers we still have major issues with management of pain and when you see that there are 100 modalities of treatment of one problem you would know that there is no one fix
0: but did these sort of um operations actually help at all i mean
1: so what we do we from the pain point of view we use a multimodal approach Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that's why we have a psychologist Mm -hmm. that works on the pain we have a pain specialist that works on the pain we have a surgeon that works on the pain so it goes from giving a patient simple tablets to intravenous medications to stimulators. Electricity, like RF signals, mm-hmm. to dorsal root ganglia stimulators, to pain stimulators, um, to surgical intervention where we cut the nerves, to re-innovate other parts. See,
0: what does that mean, what, what, is, what is re-innovation?
1: So targeted muscle re-innovation is a technology where we utilize to, number one, get rid of the neuromas that forms at the end of the Mm-hmm. Uh, so when a nerve is cut, the ends get stimulated. Think that the nerve is injured. I need to grow. So the nerves start growing. And when the nerve grow, it, not in a conduit or not in a in a in a tube, mm-hmm. it will sprout out like a a fungus mm-hmm. or like a cauliflower, and forms a cauliflower that's very sensitive called a neuroma. Mm-hmm. And that neuroma can create significant problems for the patient pain-wise so what we do we cut that neuroma and then we found a small nerve that innervate a muscle and take that that's attached to the muscle and then get that nerve and plug it into that nerve and create another conduit or another tube for that nerve nerve fibers to grow into and innovate that muscle. How fiddly is this in the operation? It you- is very fiddly, it is very fiddly, but it's, it's a technology that has been developed, okay? And we have modified and, and we continue to work on to find a job for the nerve to do. And the theory behind that is to create a job for the nerve so it doesn't cause pain.
0: This is maybe a really stupid question, but how do you actually attach one end of a nerve to another one? You you said tie them.
1: We we repair them. So what we do in order to attach one end of the nerve to the other, we carefully and meticulously um, repair the nerve endings together, and then we wrap the muscle on the reminder of the nerve, so the nerve will be engulfed and encased by the nerve and the muscle. And that way, this nerve that has been amputated will sprout out, instead of sprouting out like a cauliflower, it will grow inside the nerve and inside that muscle and innervate that muscle and it will give it functionality. Mm -hmm. So by doing that, the theory is to inhibit or limit or reduce the chance of the phantom Mm -hmm. limb pain, reduce the chance of neuroma formation and reduce chance of phantom sensation. Mm. So,
0: And f- perhaps also get function out of the muscle. That...
1: Well, that's one primary reason is mm. to reduce the pain. Mm. Does it work 100% of the time? Definitely not, mm. okay? It works in certain percentage, uh, and we don't have enough data, we don't have enough information to give you the numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay? But we're hoping that this will carry some hope for the future of phantom limb pain management mm-hmm. that's one reason of doing it the second reason is that especially in upper limb by doing targeted muscle reinnervation we provide this reinnervation where the brachial plexus is, is cut we shift them nerves to the chest wall and use ner- muscles that are not utilized anymore reinnervate them and they become amplifiers mm-hmm. for signals so the nerve that supplied the thumb will go to the chest wall and you ask the patient to move the thumb and the chest wall move. Now what's the advantage of that is that you can put sensors on the chest wall very closely and very dedicated to these nerves, the thumb, the index finger, the, the hand, the wrist, <coughs> each one will be Dedicated in one of the muscles of the chest wall that are not utilized any way in the amputation Okay, mm-hmm. because it will be useless mm-hmm. otherwise and these signals will be transmitted to operate a prosthesis because it's amplified so Instead of haphazardly getting a myelectric prosthesis attached To a big space mm-hmm. um, You're trying to get a signal um, from a big, larger area, you, you're getting the signal from a very focal area, mm-hmm. which will be very targeted, okay? And um, and very carefully selected. And that will have more accuracy in operating in my electroprosthesis.
0: Okay, so you regain dexterity. And is this all internal then? So because you have- It's all internal. Right, and so that's the benefit, right? Because, because yeah. you have the osseointegration already happening, you already have the connection from inside yep. to outside. Now you may as well also connect up the nerves internally so that's the benefit.
1: Again, this is a, a working process. We are developing mm-hmm. this and, um, and trying to get everything within the implant, within the prosthesis is mm-hmm. a job that we are working on because it will involve a lot more regulatory processes mm-hmm. and pathways. So at the moment it's mixed, but the aim is to make it all internal for mm-hmm. the future.
0: So can we take a step back? So how many of these operations have you
1: done? Depends on what what so, question. So
0: let's just say, for example, above knee uh, amputation.
1: Uh, so total OCA integration, we've done over a thousand now, mm-hmm. and um, there are coming close to two thousands around the world.
0: I see. So from from a thousand patients, what do outcomes look like in ter- Let's let's look uh, for instance at um, infections. Yes. So. so so what sort of infection, what, what, what are the rates, what are the numbers? Um, so we, the
1: published, we published a, a, a landmark paper in General Journal of Bon John Surgery in 2015, I think, mm-hmm. about the rate of infection or, or safety of osteointegration. Mm-hmm. Um, it was published in, um, uh, in JBJS American. And that was the landmark paper that we put our classification of infection because before that, people didn't understand what is infection. Mm-hmm. People have, uh, you know, increased seepage, they think it's an infection. Mm-hmm. People have blood, they think it's infection. People have big redness and swelling, they think it's infection. People have fevers and, uh, you know, being unwell, they think it's an infection. So we thought that, hang on, we need to, this is a new technology, we need to classify it. Mm-hmm. So I created um, a grading system for infection from grade one to grade four. Mm-hmm. Grade one, which requires oral antibiotics,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is just soft tissue infection, uh, superficial infection that involve redness of the skin that can be treated by oral antibiotics and doesn't mm-hmm. need intervention, okay? Mm-hmm. And then grade two, where you have deeper soft tissue infection, where the, um, um, the um, deeper layers of the soft tissue is infected and people have discharging pus, and more purulent discharge and more pain Mm -hmm. and can be treated with oral antibiotic or intravenous antibiotic or with surgical debridement. Then you have grade three where the bone is involved Mm -hmm. and you have periosteal reaction, osteitis, inflammation in the bone. And that is more deep, okay, Mm -hmm. uh, involving the bone itself. And that can be treated again by Mm -hmm. any modality, including surgery. And then you have grade four where the implant fail as a result mm-hmm. of the infection,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is a catastrophic failure. So this was the grading system. And from the grading system, the grade four was very rare.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what sort of numbers from a thousand?
1: Uh, look, I mean, the numbers, the, we didn't have a thousand. Now, we, we're writing another paper about the thousand, yeah. okay? And that will give you more accurate because there is a paper about infection particularly mm-hmm. um, in that uh but from memory the um, the the uh, grade 4 was like 2% or something like that mm-hmm. and the grade uh 1 was around 34% i see and and in between and in between you have 5% for bony infection and then maybe even mm-hmm. 15% for deeper soft tissue infection i, I can't remember the exact figures but this is overall mm-hmm. what I see day in day out
0: mm-hmm. okay so, so can i uh, so 34 percent that's superficial that's something just oral antibiotics you can deal with that
1: yes superficial infection that doesn't require uh, mm-hmm. an invasive procedure
0: and and how does that compare for example you said for instance that people who have the fitted prosthetic they will also sometimes get skin infections how, how, how does that compare to those sorts so of-
1: for a superficial infection is is uh, comparable and that okay. is very interesting, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so we've done another paper. So so for the, because there is no implant inside the bone, so mm-hmm. you can't get the bony, I mean, people do get bony infections with a socket as well. Mm-hmm. People do get ulcers, people do get, um, um, you know, bony infections with the socket, but the data is very, um, uh, there is not enough literature have been written mm-hmm. uh, about it. You need to understand Mm -hmm. Amputees are the two hard box basket for for medicine, Mm -hmm. and majority of amputees are not treated by clinical uh, physicians. They're treated by prosthetists Mm -hmm. and physiotherapists. I see, Mm -hmm. because surgeons don't treat amputees. Throughout our training, Mm -hmm. if I tell you the amount of hours we spent on studying about amputation was very small. Mm -hmm. Okay, it was one lecture basically. Mm -hmm. And then when you come and do amputation, amputation to a surgeon means failure. I see. Okay, And a patient comes in, when they get the amputation, after the amputation, you see them when the wound heal, and after the wound heal, they go to the prosthesis, and you don't see them again. So what I'm trying to create is a completely different scenario where you move these, this cohort of patients back to the medical field, and you follow them up because these patients will continue to be your patients. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: As opposed to when they use a socket, you don't fit them with the socket, the prosthetist fit them with the socket and you don't see them unless there is a complication. And if there is a complication, they come back to a surgeon or any surgeon, okay? Mm-hmm. And because of the phantom limb pain and because of the pain that these patients have with amputation, they are always unfortunately starting for a very low point because they are physically mentally and psychologically traumatized. Mm-hmm. So you're starting with a, a very difficult cohort of patients that sadly not many people are happy to deal with because they are complex patients. Okay? I wanna get
0: onto the mental impact of having one of these um, uh, uh, implants yep. in a little bit, yep. but can, can, can we go then to the other categories? J-
1: just before, yeah. before, sure. before uh, I go there, um, periprosthetic fractures because breaking around the implant okay is a big deal Mm -hmm. okay and it's in the vicinity of five to seven percent that's even higher than serious infections Mm -hmm. but when you look at the literature and we did a comparative study we published about it i mean mind you what's what make us very strong is our publication is very big Mm -hmm. and we publish about everything the good the bad and the ugly and that's how because we believe that this should be the Existing technology for a wider uh, Number of amputees
2: mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and this should be well-established technology that is available similar to what happened in the hip replacement in the 60s mm. Okay, where it was heavily criticized very ostracized and then look at it now. It's the standard mm. Similar to what happened to the dental implant again in the 80s. Okay, it was never acknowledged and now it become wider acknowledged
0: well, can I ask you, so with dental implants, h- how do the infection rates compare um, with what you're doing with amputees?
1: Again, that's yeah. a very good question. And it's on par. It's very comparable. Hmm. And dental implants, they do get infected. Hmm. And I don't have exact numbers from the literature, but it's very clearly stated that infection rate is significant. And and why... But, but it's manageable.
0: But why is it... So you mentioned at the start that uh, the mouth is... One area where you've got huge uh, amounts of bacteria, it's it's I suppose, a dirty place to have this sort of uh, infection. So, so why why is it that they're so successful? why Why is it that it's possible to do this? Because it just to my mind, it sounds crazy that you can have an open wound and yeah. so
1: though dirty areas in the body are orifices. Okay, so you have the mouth, you have the orange tract, you have the bowel, um, the, um, uh, the anal sphincter, all these are dirty. The anal sphincter, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, factually speaking, it is cleaner than the mouth, okay? <laughs> uh, because of the nature of bacteria, mm-hmm. okay? They're more vicious in the mouth, mm-hmm. okay? And and that's why if a cat, for example, a cat mouth is very dirty, mm-hmm. and, and you, you, you hear that cat bits the owner and then uh, lost the, the person <laughs> lost the hand, okay? Because I'm, I'm treating a cat bite now in the hospital with severe infection, okay? Uh, that we had to do surgery to just try to save the person's hand, okay? So why is it successful? Now, it's all goes down to the technique. If you provide a solid interface between the bone and the implant with no movement and no room, to go and you have mm-hmm. a proper, stable, soft tissue coverage, the bacteria doesn't have a place to go to. So the infection risk will become lower. That's why with modification of the technology of osseointegration in the limbs, we minimize the soft tissue, okay? And that's mm-hmm. why in more obese patients, the infection rate is higher, okay? Um, and when with using um, a more robust, Aussie integrated implants that reduce the infection rate dramatically. Mm-hmm. Okay, same thing um, with um, uh, with the dental implant. They moved into stages, and they were doing two stages, three stages, and now they're doing it in one stage. Mm-hmm. Again, so evolution has occurred in in both dint, uh, the dental um, uh, industry and in our uh, in our field, and I think mm-hmm. that will help people by having less number of operations, less chance of infection, less chance of intervention, and less chance of complication, basically. Mm. Back to the fracture, okay? So five to 7% per prosthetic fracture happened with OC integration, okay? And when we looked at the literature of socket users, it's exactly the same number, mm-hmm. okay? So yeah, it's the no socket different.
0: user is a hip? Oh, no,
1: yeah, the hip. F- traditional socket prosthesis. Oh, I see, I see. People I see. use the traditional socket prosthesis. So when you look at the superficial infection, is not different, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, But we don't have enough data about what percentage of bony infection that these people have, Mm -hmm. okay, which is not insignificant
2: Mm.
1: What I'm trying to say is that we are dealing with very complex patients. We are dealing with very complex pathology We will not grow a leg back. Okay, Mm. it's much easier to treat arthritic hips or knees Okay Mm. with arthritic hip. It's much more guaranteed outcome You get a hip replacement or knee replacement, success rate is in the high 90s, okay? And people are very happy. Majority of these people have no psychological issues, no mental issues, okay? Mm. And um, their disability is just because they develop arthritis and you immediately give them their mobility back, okay? Mm. And they are the happiest patients and relieve their pain. Pain is a big deal um, with arthritis and it, it, it changed their, um um life dramatically because when you take the arthritis away you do the hip replacement you do the knee replacement you do the ankle replacement and mind you we do a lot of ankle replacements now okay and this is the future because until now a lot of people uh, with ankle arthritis go to the doctor and they get it fused we are philosophically against fusion for the vast majority of patients, if we can replace an ankle, we would replace it because mm-hmm. there's nothing better than restoring mobility
0: and relieving pain. What about in the spine? Because you hear about people who have fused spines who have lots of problems. Is that something that's ever gonna be possible or?
1: I'm not sure because I I'm, I specialize, in, I, th- this is outside my specialty so mm-hmm. I can't comment on that but definitely any joint is designed to move. Mm-hmm. The joint is designed to move. The joint is not designed to be stiffened, okay? So with, it makes a lot of sense if you replace the ankle. I mean, ankle fusion so far is the standard, the golden standard treatment for, uh, for uh, ankle arthritis. And I think this is, this is changing very quickly, okay? We change that in hip replacement, we change that in knee replacement, and the next is ankle replacement. And we have very good successful outcome from ankle replacement. But the point is, these patients, you give them their mobility, and you give them pain relief, what you can't do in osseo integration. I see. With OSEA integration, you give them their mobility, but you may not give them pain relief. Mm. And that's why you have a certain cohort of patients that will continue to have issues. And that's why it is very important to have proper education for these patients,
2: mm.
1: proper thorough consultation to manage expectations. To manage expectations. Mm. And that's why when I told you about the two scenarios, okay. The scenario of the athlete is much harder to treat than the scenario of the wheelchair-bound patient, okay? And patients can be optimized for surgery. Patients can be minimized with their risks, okay? But what you can't guarantee is giving a patient a, um, you know, a pain-free OC integration surgery because pain is pre-existing. The vast majority mm-hmm. of patients that come to us asking about uh, integration do have pre-existing symptoms with mm-hmm. phantom pain, phantom sensation. And that's why we are very careful with documenting everything. Mm-hmm. And, and because people forget, okay? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, and it happened before, and um, well, scenarios where the patient says, I lost my house, I lost my wife, I lost my company, uh, and, and I developed regional pain syndrome. Um, no, sorry, sir, okay? You came to us with this problem, mm. okay? And we did OC integration, but we didn't relieve the pain mm. because we could not relieve the pain, mm. okay? So, um, and that's why when we go back to the patient and say, hang on, but in your initial inquiry, you told us about the amount of pain that you have, and you're telling us exactly the same symptoms. It is a bit better, okay? But it's not gone. And that's because we started with this. We can work on that, but separate to the osteointegration surgery, and that's very important to understand from patient expectation point of view. That this is not a pain relieving operation. This is an operation that would give the patient better mobility.
0: Mm. Can you talk about? Can you give some examples? So, for example, um, well, let me ask. Do you? Do you have any stories of patients in particular that you're proud of working on, that really stick in your mind, that, that a where you've really seen this has really worked, this has really done a great job for this patient? Uh, I mean, you've had a thousand patients now, so there must be many, but.
1: Look, uh, I go through a lot of criticism. I go through a lot of attacks. I go through a lot of um, uh, you know negativism in my life. And what keep me going is my patients. The vast majority of my patients I'm very proud of. The vast majority of my patients are proud of me. And the vast majority of patients, um, uh, you know, make me do what I do. Um, and every time I have a dark moment, um, um, it, it's, it's amazing how you have a, a message on your phone or a Facebook coming up or someone pick up the phone and call you and say, uh, you know, thank you very much for doing this for me. You gave me my life back. Um, so, the vast majority of my patients, I'm very proud of, um, of being able to serve them and being able to be part of their journey and, yeah. and their life, okay? And, um, and I will continue to do what I do, uh, despite the, <laughs> the odds. Definitely, I have failed some patients. Yeah. Definitely, I have disappointed some patients and I'm not perfect. And and there are certain circumstances where um, we treated patients there that we couldn't help them, we couldn't solve their problems, and we were below their expectation. And that's again back to the point where um, I can only improve on the pre-operative and assessment um, um, time where education 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 mm. uh, about expectation for the patient because that is sometimes and i always tell my colleagues and tell my um uh, people that i uh, that i train always um, you know go through the mundane process okay mm. even if it's as bright as the light of the sun that this patient require that you need to go through the mundane process mm. um of ticking every single box because you never know, uh, okay, what you would be missing, Mm. okay? And if you do that and you go through your checklist, it's like flying a plane. Mm. A pilot has to go through that checklist in order to have a safe journey. Mm. And with medicine, unfortunately, it's not as good as flying a plane because you're dealing with a machine. You're not dealing with a human being Mm. Uh, because there are elements um, that you face where the machine doesn't change, human being can vary, emotions can um, uh, intervene, other circumstances can intervene, okay? That can alter the course. Mm. And ultimately, sometimes, uh, you know, you get patients who are extremely unhappy and extremely Mm. dissatisfied, and then you take them through the journey and they become your best mates, Mm. okay? Uh, but they have to go through the journey. And it's all about trust, and it's all about good communication, and it's all about having your faith in someone. And then the opposite. You get sometimes where patients are very happy and very easygoing about everything, and then everything turns, and then changes. And when that happens, you need to respect that. Mm. And you need to empower the patient to make their decision to move away, okay? And if they decide to do that, you have no control on it, unfortunately. And sometimes, Uh, you know um, it's for the better good for them okay and sometimes it's not sometimes you feel inside you and I see that where patients have um, you know decided I don't want you to treat me anymore and they've gone elsewhere and you see that and you say look you're going somewhere where you will not get the the best Mm. okay but you can't you just Mm. have to let go and you just it's like a divorce you know you have to back off and Take it on the chin and respect the patient wish. Ultimately, I am here and we are here to serve these patients. We're mm-hmm. not here to control them. We're not here to dictate on to them what they have mm-hmm. to do. You need, all what we can do best is to empower the patient to make the right decision for themselves.
0: Well, well, can you tell me about some of the exciting developments uh, when it comes to, um, for example, uh, having prosthetics that actually move and can do what people want and give more back to a patient rather than just having sort of a, a, a dumb prosthetic, something that actually works and moves
1: for them. So I can show you certain examples of our patients that, um, that have um, had um, this technology and what this have given them back. Um, and you can see the, um, the control that these people have on their prosthetic is amazing because they wouldn't be able to achieve that with um, uh, basically the uh, uh, the uh, uh, socket mounted prosthesis and the and the um, like the, what do you call it the traditional uh, prosthesis and you can see like these are examples this this is only a few weeks after the patient was fitted with the prosthesis
0: for those who are just listening uh, there's a, ma- a gentleman with two. Uh, hand prosthetics, and he's moving them around uh, as though they're his own arms, essentially.
1: And, you know, and this is in Australia, but then when you look at it, um, this technology can be translated, not just to Australia, but can be translated all around the world, even in developing countries.
0: See, this is something that I, I, I really want to ask you about because... So you said you've done something like fifty percent of the
1: So this is a similar prosthesis, but mm-hmm. ten million times cheaper, okay mm-hmm. in Iraq where a patient can still operate the same technology, do the same thing, okay? Um, and this is with one of uh, what what um, there is a, um, a talented Australian, mm-hmm. he was an Australian of the year. Um, who have invented um, a myelectric prosthesis, okay? What's his name? I, can't, I don't know if I'm allowed to disclose his okay, name, okay. okay. but you can find him, okay? Yeah. But he's an absolutely talented person that have gone through difficulties and hardship mm-hmm. because he tried to find a cheap solution for... And I, I, I see him as an idol for me because he's trying to find a cheap solution for people with, who lost limbs we're giving them my electric prostheses from cheap 3D printed printers, mm-hmm. okay, and uh, making them available for these people that cannot pay the tens of thousands of dollars for this technology, okay. And he's a person that I would, you know, um, uh, put on a on a pedestal, basically, and he's an Australian hero, okay. But again people attacked him simply because he's interfering with other people's business.
0: So, you know, you you mentioned that you've done something like a thousand of these and worldwide there have been 2000. If you look in Iraq alone, you'll have to correct me if I get the numbers wrong, but I believe there's something like 200,000 amputees uh, of that order from Iraq alone. And now we have in Ukraine, we have all um, landmine injuries all over Africa. And so, one of the things that you one one direction you could go with this technology is you could you could uh, build the Ferrari. You know you you could have it, it go in the direction of having um, uh, trying to get back full movement for every patient, or you could push the direction in the direction of let's see whether we can work with the supply chain. Let's see whether we can make this cheap. Let's see if we can bring this down so that you can do the operation in in, in one procedure, maybe even in in um, a, a, an environment which it may exist in certain third world places. Um, I'm thinking along the lines of what um, Fred Hollows did. You know, he he's also another Australian surgeon who uh, bought lens implants uh, all over the world. So, what, do you have a plan for scaling? Do you, Do you have a plan for going into areas and being able to really? not just a 1,000, uh, uh, this is impressive, of course, but do you have a plan for hitting these 200,000 Iraqis and the people coming out of uh, Ukraine and other conflict zones?
1: So um, this is exactly my hope before I die. So mm-hmm. um, we have a project that is going. In Iraq, it's well-established. We have done 188 amputees in Iraq. Um, all but one patient had been explanted. Mm-hmm. One patient had an explantation, and this patient, she will have um, a re-implantation the minute I go back. Is,
0: is, sorry, what, what does that mean, explantation? That, the, that's, that's a the failure? Implant, or the implant
1: the... failed, and mm. we had to remove it. She's still mm-hmm. walking. Yeah. We put her back on the socket matter prosthesis, uh, but because she was a child MPT, and then she grew up to become an adult, and that implant, um, she was an adult when we operated on her, but she was a child MPT, so her bone was child bone. So it was very complex, and um, she will be re-implanted because, despite that the implant failed, her bone grew,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and now it's suitable for uh, being fitted as an adult MPT if she mm-hmm. wished to go with it. So all but that person, okay, have been successful,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and still are successful. Some people with some issues like uh, you know discharge and things like that, but the project is well established in Iraq, mm-hmm. and that will be scaled, um, you know, to be available to the wider public at a much cheaper price, mm-hmm. okay? Um, because H- I can't far keep- How can you bring it down? Well, it, it depends, it's a scale of volume, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, so, uh, because I can't keep funding this project mm-hmm. uh, on the long run. So far we have, similar to other projects in Cambodia, the four MPTs that we've done are doing brilliantly well, despite what um, some people said, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, I checked with them just in the last month and they're all functioning very well and they would not go back to the socket prosthesis. So in Cambodia, we wanna go back. Um, we've done a project in Lebanon, very mm-hmm. successful. Israel, West Bank, Jordan, Egypt, um, Vietnam, uh, India, Taiwan, Hong Kong. There are many countries that we've done projects in um, and South Africa, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and Ukraine, I'm going next week to start a project over there. Um, The aim from every project is to achieve three goals. Number one is to help as many people as we can on the spot. Number two is to train their existing Mm -hmm. staff to manage these patients when we leave and continue to look after them. And number three, to establish the base for these people to carry on and build the program further because mm-hmm. i'm one person okay i have one team and uh, we can't achieve all of that but we can have a multiplier effect by doing this because philosophically mm-hmm. the technology work mm-hmm. and philosophically this is not i'm the clinician and i'm managing mm-hmm. um, these patients and i have to manage every single patient this is all about education, training, and handing over, and then people can carry on mm-hmm. the process from there onward. Okay? And how
0: has the education in Iraq looked like? Do you have surgeons there that are, what, what, by the way, what's the infra- infrastructure like there? When, when you go and do um, implantations there, what, what's it like in the hospital system? Is, is it developed again after the so, war?
1: So you, have, so you have two different scenarios that we deal with, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, You have the Iraq scenario and you have another scenario where you have um, Struggling countries. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Iraq before the Craziness of Saddam Hussein was very developed in the medical field.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It went through the hurdles of Isis and the American involvement and then American leaving and the turmoil of the um, you know looting and um, and corruption of the government. But Iraq continued to have an infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So the infrastructure in Iraq is well established. I have four fellows. Um, I have a current Iraqi fellow where they come in, they get trained and they go back. I have visiting surgeons that come and go. And I have trained, been to Iraq eight times, and I'm going as soon as they send me the next invite and they're coming hopefully a couple of months. Um, And they have the facilities where it's built very well, um, similar to the facilities here in Sydney. Mm -hmm. There's no difference, okay? Mm -hmm. What they lack is the skills. Mm -hmm. What they lack is the experience. And that's where our job comes, where we can train these people and bring them up to the international standards. And we have done that. Mm -hmm. I continue to do that by getting the fellows coming in, training, spending six months to a year and going back and by training the locals every time I go and 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 building the infrastructure um, from there. So Iraq is safe. Iraq patients are looked after very well, they're looked after very regularly, there is enough documentation, great deal of follow-up, okay? Iraq is fine, Iraq standing on its own and they are performing the surgeries by themselves now mm. without my need. Mm. We just send them the implants, okay? Mm. So that is Iraq. Then you have other developing countries, which is a different um, uh, um, area, like Cambodia, as an example. Cambodia is a more risky area because in Cambodia, the infrastructure is very weak, okay? Um, and um, people live in more rural areas and the government doesn't fund anything uh, for, uh, for the infrastructure. So it's a bit harder. Again, a language barrier for me is a, is a problem. So I'm not saying that Cambodia is a hopeless case, but I'm saying that the challenge is much bigger. Mm. So I wouldn't, so that's why I did only four cases in Cambodia as a trial and they still be managed, but on that smaller scale, we can manage it. But if we do hundreds in Cambodia, at this particular moment, we will fail Mm. and we will put patients at risk. But Iraq, we can go, on a, on a significant scale, very easy, because the infrastructure is built, the staff are trained, and um, they are continuing to follow up with us, and they can carry the, the, the process themselves, okay? So we are dealing with two different scenarios. There, are other, there is a third scenario where you have the developed world, like the UK, Germany, Spain, um, Holland, um, um, Italy, um, all these countries we have we have performed, Israel, we have done cases in, okay? And very successfully, America, Canada, um, and they continue to do cases. And basically what we do, uh, like I did the first NHS case um, funded by the NHS just last week, I came back from the UK, they invited me to go there, um, I did the training with the staff over there, we performed the surgery on the patient, okay? They will follow them up and this will open a window for the NHS patient from now onward because they're well trained, they have the infrastructure and they can carry on, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's a different uh, um, category of patients as well, where this is opening um, that technology for wider population of MPTs, whether they are in developed countries or developing countries and ultimately by doing that and multiplying that the scale of Mm -hmm. economy will be better and this will become more acceptable practice um uh, more standardized and cheaper Mm -hmm. uh, for the broader uh, um, uh, population of MPTs all around the world so it is working obviously there are there is a lot of opposition and obviously there is um, a lot of criticism which is important because you need to be criticized you need to be as long as uh, you know it's it's above the belt and it's it's not (laughs) attacking the the motive and the integrity it's it if it's a scientific criticism absolutely Um, 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 a robust criticism is very important to keep people at check to mm. make sure that the quality continue to uh, uh, to be maintained and improved, and uh, and we all learn from our mistakes. Mm. So, um, uh, but you know, it's like with any innovative technology, um, the opposition is big at the beginning. On you know, it goes through phases. From what I've seen, um, it it you get ridiculed at the, at the at the beginning, then you get attacked, and um, uh, and then. Uh, you get attacked more fiercely, and then you attack more fiercely, and if you survive, people start coming and watching, and then coming and learning, and then people start taking it on.
0: And where on the curve are you at the moment, you'd say? I
1: think we are on the- The downward. Um, the downward, well, <laughs> it's becoming acceptable because um, um, you know I hope that the attacks are, <laughs> are winding down, and uh, because the technology does exist, I have the pa- the first patient I did was in 2009. He's still running; he's still going very well.
0: When when you did that first patient, so so right now you've got a thousand patients. Behind you, mm. you, you can show the numbers. But for that first patient, how how do you get allowance to do that? What, what what's the what are the hoops you need to jump through? So
1: so there are regulatory hoops. There are um, you know patient hoops mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, and there are personal hoops um, mm-hmm. because are you doing this, uh, you know, um, to help the patient? So with regulatory hoops, that was easy because it was a trial that we mm-hmm. uh, we started and we've gone through the regulatory um, uh, aspects of, of it uh, without any problems. With the patient, I chose the patient or the patient chose me, basically, mm-hmm. very carefully. A patient was a um, highly educated patient. Um, mm-hmm. uh, well-knowledged about the technology. He's a professor of biomedical um, biomechanical engineering. Mm. Um, so he can't be better than that person. And he is very motivated. He was the flag bearer of uh, the Sydney Paralympics in Australia, and he is a very reasonable person,
2: mm-hmm.
1: very understanding person. And uh, he researched it mm-hmm. um, uh, all over, and he wanted this to be done in Australia, mm-hmm. okay? Um, so he was the best patient. We did the operation. Okay, and he wasn't the easiest patient from the technical point of view. Mm-hmm. It was very complicated. Uh, well, and why, why was that man?: uh, From technicality, like with the, with the bone, the bone was curved, I had to straighten the bone, okay. and I had to uh, you know do a couple of operations before embarking on OC integration mm-hmm. because the bone was not straight. Mm-hmm. We did the operation. We monitored the patient, that particular and that only patient for a year, okay? Mm-hmm. And we monitored him very closely, very carefully, making sure that every box is ticked. Once we were comfortable, the next year we did three patients. So we did these three patients and we waited for a year for these patients while monitoring the first patient. First patient had two years follow up, second cohort had th- one year follow up, and then we did another group. Mm. and then by the year five or six we were comfortable that we have five-year follow-up of the mm-hmm. first patient mm-hmm. and then we said this technology work now we can do it on a broader scale okay, okay? and that's when we started saying that this technology does exist please come if you want to have it so we did not rush Mm-hmm. In doing hundreds in the first year and then fall on our head. Mm-hmm. Okay, we did one, we did three, and then we did I think another five or six, and then and then from there it grew. So it was a very, um, uh, you know, slow pace, uh, mm-hmm. very measured, very carefully assessed, and very well followed up. And I still follow him up to this day. Uh, okay, um, and he's doing brilliantly well.
0: And, and how how do you say Australia, the Australian medical, what would you call it, the fraternity, the system uh, is with regards to the balance between uh, patient care and being conservative and, and um, uh, approaching patients from uh, the point of view of care and, and being innovative on the other hand? What, do we get the balance right or...?
1: uh that's a very very politically Mm -hmm. incorrect question um look i mean australia is a very conservative country Mm -hmm. okay and um sadly uh we have a lot of talent we have a lot of talented people but we have a very conservative establishment whether for the right reason or not that's a question okay Mm -hmm. Um, there's always need to have healthy checks and healthy uh, balances um, in place, and healthy, critical people that would come and criticize the work that the fraternity does. Um, as long as it's done for the greater good for the patients okay at the same time the wheel of innovation need to continue and unfortunately there are certain few people around where they said it to my face the wheel of medicine should have stopped in 1945 okay and and it's not just os integration When I first started doing anterior approach to the hip, I was extremely criticized about coming up with a new technology that's anterior approach to the hip and this is new, this is dangerous and it can't be right because if it's right, why wouldn't we have done it long time ago? Okay? And this is the wrong argument because Mm -hmm. it's yes, it is a technology that has not been taking off because It wasn't the right time to take off. Mm. We didn't have the right instrumentation. We didn't have the right approach. We didn't have the right um, um, uh, thinking about how it works. Okay. Despite that, factually, they were incorrect because its anterior approach to the hip is not a new technology. Mm. It was invented in 1924 by a Norwegian surgeon, um, Smith Peterson, in New York, Mm. basically. So it's not a new technology; it's an old technology, uh, but it created um, a massive, um, like, uh, discussions and and criticism in the med- in the orthopedic fraternity for a long period of time. And until now, there are surgeons who are strong believers uh, that the anterior approach is wrong. Okay, well, uh, what is it
0: exactly? Before it's we-
1: coming. It's coming. Uh, doing the hip replacement through the front. I see. see because. Um, The older generation do it through the side, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: which is a very invasive technique. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of surgeons in the past you do it through the back.
0: Mm -hmm. So you wanna do it without severing
2: muscles?
1: Well, the anterior approach is done without cutting any muscles, basically. Mm -hmm. It is more challenging technology, but I strongly believe that the best approach to the hip replacement is the approach that is done by the surgeon that know what they're doing, regardless whether it's anterior or posterior. I have my reservations about a lateral approach, but um, that's my personal view on it. Uh, But um, a good approach is an approach that is done well by the surgeon that that know what they're doing, uh, basically. So, but again, this approach was criticized very heavily uh, by uh, people and unfortunately uh, people were vocal about it uh, mm-hmm. despite that it is a well established technology around the world mm-hmm. okay so we came late in adopting it and now it's the most growing approach in australia basically mm-hmm. same thing happened with robotic neuroplacement okay mm-hmm. when we started doing robotic neuroplacement the 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 criticism was that ah this is a gimmick and this is uh this is just a marketing tool no it's not robotic knee replacement does add significant value to doing a new replacement it give extreme precision it give extreme um view about Areas that we can't see with 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 naked eye
0: by robotic uh, knee replacement You mean you are assisted in the operation by robots rather than the knee itself being robotic.
1: Yes It is robotic assisted knee replacement where I have a robot in the room and the robot So it doesn't start by the operation the robotic knee replacement start when the patient Sit with you in the consult room. Mm -hmm. Okay, you take data You take measures and then you send them for special images and these images all the information get fed to the, to the computer and the computer analyzes it and then this, this analysis is combined with what you take on the day inside the operation with, by guiding the robot through the navigation portals and all this data gets collected by the computer, analyzed and then the computer spit out the details of where is this knee in space? And it's like a navigation, okay, of a plane where it tells you that Helsinki is in this part of Europe, okay? Um, You can't see Helsinki from here, okay? Uh, But you know factually that when you take the plane that way, okay, Mm -hmm. you don't follow the stars. So I don't think, um, you know, um, there is negativity about the robotic knee technology. As a matter of fact, it's an added tool Um, an instrumentation that will help you to provide a better service for your patient but the criticism was that this is a gimmick this is a marketing tool this doesn't help anything we can do the operation with our eyes closed Mm -hmm. well with all due respect okay we need to be up to date with with the science with the medicine and we need to adapt and accept change and that is my criticism about some members of our fraternity. Mm. Change means the unknown mm. and the unknown must be bad. So so can I ask then
0: with, with this robotic assisted knee surgeries for, for mm. instance, what can you actually do that's is, so you said some people say they can do it with their eyes closed or they, they find these uh, surgeries so simple you don't need the robotic assistance but in terms of the outcome for the patient what can you do with these assistant techniques that you couldn't do b- before is it
1: it's it's not about what you can do with it it's about how accurate your measures are
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's all about accuracy and of implementing your positioning of cuts and positioning of your implants mm-hmm. because a joint, a knee joint, is a structure in space that has multidimensional figure and can be put inaccurately in many planes. Rotational-wise, flexion extension-wise, medialization, lateralization, size-wise on the um, uh, side plane and front plane, okay? depth-wise with the joint line, Okay, as well as angulation-wise. So there is a lot of variables that go there. In order to restore a knee function, you need to restore four things. You need to restore ligament balance, and the ligament balance relies heavily on the position of the implant. Mm -hmm. You need to restore the joint line, you need to put it in the right space, not high, not low, and that relies heavily on how you measure where to put Mm -hmm. it you need to restore the patella tracking and that relies heavily on the rotation of the implant. If you Mm -hmm. rotate it one degree here, one degree here, and you need to restore um, uh, basically mechanical access, Mm -hmm. okay? And that relies again on how you put it in Mm -hmm. line-wise. So a knee replacement is not just whacking the cartilage off and putting a piece of metal in. A knee replacement relies on accuracy and how you position the implant in space Mm -hmm. in a precise manner. If you get it wrong, majority of unhappy patients um, with knee replacement is simply because the patella tracking is not good. Uh, mm-hmm. Simply because they got stiff, because it was overstuffed. Simply because the size wasn't, uh, wasn't right. Or mm. often, okay, is because of a combination of a lot of these things.
2: Mm.
1: Okay, so you need to take into consideration that every patient comes to your room, is the only patient that you're treating, mm-hmm. and give them the best uh, of uh, your ability with knowledge and Whatever you have in your armamentarium uh, to supply them with. So I don't see any negativity in utilizing good technology as long as you are familiar with it, you know how to use it, and it's for the best uh, interest of the patient. And the data from our registry, and the registry is a very good example about and um, the results because it's a blunt tool. It collect data from every surgeon in Australia and then it compare them with each other, mm-hmm. okay? And you can't lie about that because it's a national registry and it's collecting these data and it's spitting out this information, okay? That tells you where you are and where you stand and you know if you're performing or not because mm-hmm. everyone can tell you that I'm the best surgeon in the world, mm-hmm. okay? Um, but the data Bluntly, though it's a blunt tool, it can put you where you are in the performance. And the data have showed clearly that people who are using assistive technologies, such as robotic, mm-hmm. the results are coming superior. Mm-hmm. Okay, But can I say that the robotic technology better? No, I can't because I'm just going by what the data is showing
0: do you this is going to be a strange question to ask someone who's doing this as a profession but do you still have moments where you are in the operating room and it just seems crazy that your job is opening up that you you have full trust from this person you're it's sort of um it it blows my mind that we can even do this it's normalized it 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 happens every day but it's it's really amazing that we're able to do this
1: look um i mean uh I may never said that before, but every patient I operate on, um, it takes me a couple of seconds before I enter the room, I think to myself that I should give this patient the best of my ability. And I have to always remember that I need to respect what I'm going to do and respect what I'm dealing with. and almost every single case I do, when I open I say to myself, holy shit, (laughs) okay, (laughs) sorry, I swore. That's okay. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But it is a big responsibility. Mm. And um, I don't take that lightly. And um, we can laugh, we can joke, we can um, um, stay stupid things sometimes, but it remains, when we do our job, we do it with the utmost respect Toward mm. who we're dealing with, uh, and um, um, and try our best to give them the best, mm-hmm. um, uh, to the best of our knowledge. And again, um, I want to continue doing that. Um, I don't want my job to be a business mm-hmm. or a job like any other job because um, I chose to do medicine because I love helping people. Okay, and. Um, Unfortunately, I've been told again and again and again that it's just a job like any other job, and you just need to treat it like any other job. And you should stop giving your number to your patients Mm. because, um, you know, if you miss a phone call, they can use it against you. Mm. And this is not what medicine is about it's about trust, it's about um, helping others, and it's about, uh, you know, with open arms, try to be uh, kind to people and um, and not to expect anything in return.
0: So then I, I'm gonna direct the conversation towards, I, I, I wanna sort of end off with uh, a word about the future and sort of your dreams for the direction of this field. So I'm wondering, is there any technology or any advancement that's currently happening that you're particularly excited about in the field? Is, is there something that really uh, you think is amazing that's happening right now?
1: Look, uh... I think uh, what I was embarking on um, uh, just recently was to take osseointegration to the next level. Mm-hmm. And that is by um, combining the targeted muscle renovation with implantable electrodes devices where you can operate a, a myoelectric prosthesis. And, um, and this is a big project. This is the next level where you, uh, you know, stabilize the prosthesis, by skeletally attaching it. You hooked up the nerves and reorganized them. And now you need to connect the nerves and make them operate the, the processes. Mm-hmm. And this is the next generation, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, um, there, there are many things that I'm working on um, to solve existing problems like mm-hmm. infection, okay? Mm-hmm. We are in the process of developing an antibiotic-emitting implant, okay? That kills the bacteria locally. Without causing harm to the body, negatively charged implants uh, that would repel bacteria, basically, and prevent the bacteria from forming a biofilm around yeah, the implant. Right. Okay, um, there is another technique where um, we are. <laughs> I'm not in the business of trying to monitor people, but um, uh, we we are in the process of developing an implant that can self sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, and count the steps, count the stresses. Mm-hmm and detect whether they are impending fractures or at risk of failure, mm. okay? And um, a smart implant that can tell us and feed to us, uh, basically information about what it's doing, mm-hmm. okay? So, so there are different avenues. One is functionality and improving functionality. The other is prevention and limiting and reducing infection. The other one is self-detecting and self-awareness mm. implant, okay? Mm. All of these areas I'm working on, um, um, some of these projects will will see the light before I finish my medical career. Um, some of the projects will continue, okay? Uh, but it's very uh, exciting and we are, um, look, I strongly believe that the day will come before I die that this technology will be available to people who need it most, people who cannot afford it, mm-hmm. people who live on a dollar a day, okay? Mm-hmm. That's the main goal: is to make it available to the masses, and then the cream comes with these technologies that can help, uh, okay, and um, um, and add value to the technology that is already existing, and then ultimately, uh, well, what my my bigger goal is that because ASE integration is a small part of my uh, my. Uh, portfolio I'm, I'm a hip and knee surgeon mm-hmm. and I do hip knee anchor replacements Okay, and that that's what generate the income for me and make me uh, You know pay my bills and pay the project that I go with ocean integration Well until recently because now ocean integration is standing on its own feet um, but ultimately what I want I want our health system in Australia to be sustainable mm-hmm. because we are on the brink of collapse in the health system in Australia. We have an ailing public sector that is drowning, and we have a private sector that's struggling with inflation of, um, uh, basically, premiums that patients are suffering from. There are ways of making it sustainable. There are ways of uh, working on, which is patient-centric, cutting the unnecessary um, uh, you know, uh, extra costs and improving the quality of care for our patients, and maintaining the balance and the equilibrium in our in our health sector, without adding premiums to patients, because it disheartened me to see that um, patients are not of, able to afford their insurance and mm. dropping off because simply it's becoming too expensive, and it's not necessary. It shouldn't be like that. Um, so,
0: so what what can be done? What what are some um, Realistic steps that can be taken right now to improve the medical system in Australia, in your mind.
1: I think um, we have we have a problem in Australia with with the way um, the, the look. This is way bigger than me. This uh, this problem, and um, but I have some ideas like. I work in the private sector and I can see what's happening in the private sector, especially in arthroplasty. Um, A lot of patients are unnecessarily going to inpatient rehabilitation, Mm -hmm. Um, okay? And that's a massive, what people don't realize by them going to inpatient rehabilitation, if it's not necessary, if it's not indicated, they are increasing their premiums Mm -hmm. dramatically because uh, every day in rehab, it costs nearly $1,000 or more. Okay, if they say 10 days that $10,000 added to the cost of their surgery, mm-hmm. which is costing them, costing their insurer and costing them basically mm-hmm. another 30,000, mm-hmm. okay? So added to that, then you inflate the, the price of a, a hip replacement or a knee replacement by another 10, 15, 20,000, mm-hmm. okay? That are not necessary. That can be managed much more efficiently, much healthier, if they are not indicated for it, uh, okay, by being managed as an outpatient rehab or as a home rehab, okay, the best place for a person to recover after surgery is their own home environment. Mm-hmm. They're familiar with it, they can, uh, it's it's less chance of infection, less chance of being exposed to unnecessary uh, risks of falls and, and fractures uh, because of the familiarity mm-hmm. with their surrounding, and at the same time, okay, it, it costs significantly a cost and a burden on the on their insurer, which will be translated a burden on them by paying their, mm-hmm. uh, their premium. So it's a cycle, yeah. but we need to break that cycle. We need to think about where is this money coming from, okay? And that's why we are embarking on building um, um, institutes and organizations where it will be um, patient-centric, no out-of-pocket expenses, it disheartened me when I see a patient coming to me, sitting in front of me, and they are in desperate need of a new replacement. And they, are, they put it off for so many years because they couldn't afford the out of pocket expenses because they've been to Dr. So and Dr. So and they were asked to um, an extra amount of money. And they say, How much do you charge out of pocket? And I say, Nothing. I would not charge you anything out of pocket. Okay. Um, and, you know, because ultimately we need to treat this and i'll take whatever their insurance pay. can can you
0: are you able to say a few words about what you're actually creating now in terms of the hospital you're building or
1: so we're building we're building a a joint replacement center uh, on top of macquarie university at the moment this is a nucleus for a new change uh, in in the health sector it is patient-centric it will be arthroplasty center where joint replacement are performed hip replacement knee replacement uh, anchor ankle replacement and shoulder replacement performed. And hopefully the aim of that is to provide this with collaboration with insurers, okay, mm-hmm. that there will be no out-of-pocket expenses for the patient. Mm-hmm. Rapid rehabilitation program, rapid um, uh, um, uh, recovery and um, outpatient um, um, uh, physiotherapy where the patient can receive oh. their physical therapy and rehabilitation at home okay and cutting the costs for the patient by not having any out of pocket expenses which is a big deal for a lot of our aging population
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay because when the last thing the patient when they become at a pensioner's age or a, a retiree that they um, um, they have to pay um uh, 3 or 4000 dollars out of pocket okay for every joint they replace mm.
0: So, but how do you make this lucrative for the... Ins- what, what's the mechanism that you use to make this uh, lucrative for the insurer, um, but but also work for the patient? So, what, what's being done that's different?
1: So, what's done different, I wouldn't use the term lucrative for the insurer. This this process uh, is trying to cut the bleed and and reduce the damage. It's a damage mm-hmm. control rather than uh, more money-generating um, um Project and mm-hmm. um, because the premiums are going up mm-hmm. as a result of the premiums going up a lot of people are dropping out
2: mm-hmm.
1: And people who are dropping out um, are the younger population who think oh, I don't need a joint replacement So I'll drop out of insurance <clears throat> and people who cannot drop out <clears throat> Are people who need joint replacement because mm-hmm. they can't afford to drop out because they don't wanna go on the waiting list in the public sector.
0: But they are also the expensive patients. And they
1: are the expensive right. patients. So the person who's the, the 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 people who are struggling are the insurers. And then they bounce that back by increasing premiums. So it's a vicious cycle that's inflating the prices of insurance dramatically and is generated by simply a management issue of our health sector. Mm. A lot of patients come to to the clinician, and they say, I need a replacement, but I wanna stay for two weeks in rehab because I just wanna stay away from home. And in rehab, they feed me, they, um, mm. and they look after me. What the patient is missing out on, number one, is that inpatient rehab, if it's not indicated, okay, it will not add any benefit to their recovery, mm. okay? it can increase risks Um, and obviously um, patients who are properly suitable for inpatient rehab are patients who are clinically indicated to go to rehab if they are at risk if they need inpatient rehab but not as a choice not the patients who choose it as um um, you know because it's just um, it's available for you that's not the right indication for rehab and this bed will be occupied by a person who may not need that bed while another person is waiting to have this bed okay mm. um, to need it added to that this cost is coming out of this patient pocket mm. ultimately because they will be paying for it mm. um by their premiums so if it's not necessary to be to stay as an inpatient rehab if it's not necessarily to stay seven days in the hospital we managed we we started a pilot study by Optimizing prehabilitation, optimizing patients for the surgery and optimizing the care of the patient and just tweaking out the anesthetics and tweaking out the physiotherapy protocols and tweaking out the pain management protocol for these patients. We dropped the hospital stay after a joint replacement from eight days to nearly three days now. Mm -hmm. This is a dramatic improvement in the outcomes for patients, because patients are mobilizing earlier, instead of the patient staying in bed for two days after the surgery, um, we get the patient two hours after the surgery, once the anesthetic is wearing out, okay? And by doing that, if you mobilize the patient as early as in the day day zero of the surgery, you reduce the risk of uh, clots in the leg, clots in the lung, you save the patient, um, um, basically from having, um, uh, you know, cramps and spasms and swelling. By mobilizing them, you reduce the swelling in the leg. Mm. By mobilizing them, you encourage the circulation, reduce the chance of infection. You reduce the chance of developing, um, you know, consolidation in the lung, heart problems, and you get them healthier. Mm. And at the same time, you get them. Quicker out of the acute centre, less chance of um, contacting um, contracting an infection from the hospital, and returning them back to their normal home environment. At the same time, okay, you cut their costs ultimately. So it's a win-win situation for the patient ultimately, better for the patient, and secondly for their pockets.
0: Mm. Why isn't this being done? Why <laughs> is is there other obstructions in place? Are there
1: Sadly to say, it's been done all around the world. Mm-hmm. And we are late to adopt it. I see. So this is a proven say, path. It's... We are not reinventing the wheel. We're not creating a new trend. We are just trying to catch up with the rest of the world. And I hate mm-hmm. to say that, this is the sad reality about our system. Mm. We are not doing anything different than any other well-developed country has done 20 years ago
0: So let me end then by asking you Imagine I'm a young 18 19 year old kid who wants to go into becoming a surgeon who wants to go into medicine Do you have any advice for what they should be studying what they should be doing? What what do you what's your advice for a young person who wants to become a surgeon?
1: up-and-coming my advice to anyone who wants to become a surgeon is to have faith in what you believe in and be humble. Humility is very important. You are a human being like any other human being. You're not superior to anyone. You're not more privileged than anybody else. And accept criticism with open arms and with open mind and Use it to improve your work and your standards, and ultimately realize that whatever you do, you are here to serve your patients. It is a very difficult job. It is uh, a very rocky road. Okay, It's not a job that will be financially rewarding as much as you think so. Because if you want to have money, do something else. Because you'll spend all your life, even if you make that money, you will not spend it. Because you spend all your life in theaters. And it's not a job for someone who wants to have, unfortunately, um, it's not a, a good job for someone to have, um, a, you know, a job on the side and then my life. Mm-hmm. It's a full commitment. And you need to be dedicated for it. It cannot be half cooked. It need to be done, need to be done well. Do
0: you love your life in surgery? Do you?
1: Look, the, what I do is very rewarding, and, um, and you have great rewards from the happy patients, and you feel very humbled by when you see bad outcomes and complications. Uh, But then, you know, you take it on the chin and you try to improve, you try to fix the problem, and you try to do your best the next time. Okay? Mm. And even though a lot of the time it's out of your control, Mm. but you have to take responsibility for everything. And that Mm. is another thing that is about our career and our profession. A lot of the time, things go wrong not because you've done something wrong, things Mm. go wrong because it did go wrong. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's beyond anyone's control, and that's the worst part of our our profession is that a lot of the time, it can be outside my control, but things didn't go the way we wanted to go. Um, but you have to take full responsibility on it. You have to cop it, and you have to deal with it.
0: Do you think this is a this is an odd question to ask? But do you think your time as a refugee and being held in detention? had utility in that regard? Because everything was out of your control at that point. It was out of your hands, but you somehow bubbled up and you're in Australia, you're a representative for refugee rights, you've done time in the uh, Air Force Reserves, you're a very successful surgeon, you're helping people.
1: Do do you think there was utility
0: and you became a more resilient person or?
1: Look, we are who we are uh, by the experience that we've gone through. And diamonds become diamonds because they go under enormous amount of pressure. Um, and um, uh, definitely I was not the same person before the moment I faced the Republican Guards. I was a completely different person. I had a completely different prospect to life. But I can tell you for sure, I was brought up to be resilient. Mm-hmm. I was brought up... Um, um, Despite that, I come from a very well-off family, and um, um, I had to work hard to get mm-hmm. where what I what I want to get. Um, and um, I think um, I think my parents, especially my father, uh, have put the right seeds in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, um, and you know, it's it's always a combination from nature and nurture basically Mm. to become who we are ultimately um uh, you know i'm still learning and life keep going and i will continue to learn till the day i die
0: Mm. well munjid it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast thanks for coming along
1: thanks for having me thanks for spending time with me